Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at uh, class 10, I believe, of our um, this year's uh, Vipassana Structured Study of uh, Introspective Insight. And this, this study is designed to get to the heart of the Buddha's teaching, which is an understanding of self and an understanding of not-self, meaning an understanding of what actually constitutes a human being. Uh, the Buddha never taught the, uh, the annihilation theories that there's no, there's no such thing or no real existence for a human being, or that the ultimate existence is nothingness or emptiness. That's pure nonsense according to what the Buddha taught. Um, he used the term emptiness to teach to be empty of ignorance, meaning ignorant of Four Noble Truths. He didn't teach that there's some kind of realm to live in that is empty of anything. I mean, just think about that. I mean, I used to think about that in my early days of Buddhism, why, even questioning why am I aspiring towards nothingness? But I still did it because, because I wanted to. I wanted to be a good Buddhist. Um, and so in our study here, we've looked at some suttas that present a very broad picture, and we started drilling down, uh, especially with the last two suttas, uh, last two classes on the Sakavabhanga Sutta and the Magavabhanga Sutta, the, the analysis of the Four Noble Truths and the analysis of the Eightfold Path. And so that points us directly to this class, which is on the Datuvabhanga Sutta. Um, the uh, the The... The subtitle can be a few things. Uh, it can be nothing personal, which is how I've... Um, my short synopsis of it, because that's the synopsis of the Buddhist entire teaching, that there's nothing in the world that is personal, and if we make anything personal, including ourselves, we're doing that because we don't understand. We're doing that as a fabrication, and it can only lead to distress and suffering. Um, and then the other subtitle is the, the analysis of the six human properties. So in this sutta... The Buddha teaches that every human being is made up of six human properties and nothing more. And the understanding that comes from really grasping that is that, okay, I am these six human properties and I cannot be anything more than these six human properties, so why try? The fool will keep trying to embellish, you know, this, what this is instead of actually just living what this is. And what this is can be extremely successful in living a, um, a happy and peaceful and fulfilling human life provided there's no eye-making in that life. Remember the Bahia Sutta. Um, oh, let, me, let me start. And this is a rather long sutta. I have a feeling uh, this sutta is going to be a, a two-class sutta, but we'll see how far I, I get. Um, I notice that the more I read, the tired of my eyes get, and I'll, I'll, I will get to the point where I'm just making mistakes, and that, that gets pretty hard to listen to, too. So I'll go as far as I can. Like I said, this might be a, two, a two-class sutta. The Datuvabhanga Sutta. On one occasion, the Buddha was wandering among the, among the Magadans. He entered Rajagaha and went to the potter Bhagava. He asked Bhagava, If it is no inconvenience for you, friend, I will stay for one night in your shed. It is no inconvenience for me, but the wanderer Pukasati has already taken up residence there. If he gives his permission... You may stay there as you like. One of the reasons why I love this sutta, in fact, I would say it's one of my um, 
my top 3,318 favorite suits. <laughs> uh, is the is it shows the uh, the incredibly human nature of the Buddha. It shows both his uh, his playfulness, but his great wisdom in in seeing himself as his role as the teacher, and how in each and every moment can he best be the best teacher he can be. It's just remarkable in that way. So. Pukasati, a fellow Sakyan, Sakyan is the Buddha's clan, he was part of the Buddha's clan, had gone forth into homelessness and was developing the Buddha's Dhamma. So this is obviously later on uh, in the Buddha's teaching career. So Pukasati has been taught by some of the other monks. Uh, and the way that was usually structured is uh, a, uh, a well-versed monk was usually given five to 15 people that he was responsible for to develop. So Pukasati was obviously developed his understanding in one of those pods, but hasn't yet met the Buddha. The Buddha approached Pukasati and asked him if he could stay one night in his shed. Pukasati replied, This shed is roomy, my friend. Stay as you like. Pukasati has yet to recognize who, who's in front of him. The Buddha, had, the Buddha entered the shed and sat on a pile of leaves and grass. Folding his legs light crosswise and holding his body erect, he set mindfulness to the fore and began jhana meditation. Pukasati joined him in meditation for most of the evening. As morning approached, the Buddha had the thought, how inspiring Pukasati behaves. Let me question him on his understanding. Venerable Pukasati, out of dedication to whom have you gone forth? Who is your teacher and whose dhamma are you practicing? Well, my teacher is Gotama, the contemplative, the Buddha. A Sakyan son, meaning a, a, a clan member, a relative of mine. He is known far and wide as a Buddha, a rightly self-awakened one, who is compassionate and, and clear-knowing and of pure conduct. He is an expert of worldly affairs and the unsurpassed teacher of those fit to be taught. Can't teach people who don't want to be taught. I have gone forth with dedication to him <laughs> as my teacher, and it is his Dhamma that I am practicing. Friend Pukasati, where is the Buddha staying now? You see, he's standing, sitting right in front of him. Wanderer, I have heard that the Buddha is in Savati. Have you met the Buddha? Would you recognize him? No, I have never met the Buddha, and I would not recognize him. The Buddha, has, the Buddha understood Pukasati's devotion. Without identifying himself, he said to Pukasati, I will teach you the Dhamma, friend. Listen and pay close attention as I speak. It also shows the, the incredibly self-effacing nature of the Buddha, doesn't it? Because I, anybody during the Buddha's time, and I would say most people during this time, are going to at least take credit for being recognized as a Buddha and say, yeah, you're right, I am that great guy. It, it's of no consequence to the Buddha. He's simply concerned about teaching Pukasati the Dhamma. The Buddha continues, A person has six properties, six media of sensory contacts, contact leading to 18 distinct Considerations. That sounds like a lot of gobbledygook and too many numbers, but you'll see how clear the Buddha makes these things. Furthermore, a well-focused Dharma practitioner establishes four wise determinations. Having established these four wise determinations, this one has stilled the distraction of fabricated speculation and supposition. Another point to what the Dharma is all about. Stilling fabrication and supposition. So anytime I get into a fabricated view, I'm also going to fall into supposition. What if I do this? Suppose I do this, 
then I suppose I will get this reward or I will, I will gain this. I will add this to myself, to this thing that I think needs something. When the distraction of fabricated speculation and supposition has stilled, that's the point of the Dhamma, this one is said to be a sage at peace. A well-focused Dhamma practitioner should not neglect wise discernment, should always guard the truth, meaning should always guard four noble truths, and should always be devoted to unbinding and train their minds solely for calm. Solely for calm. So any aspect of grasping in a so-called Dhamma or Dharma practice is, will not lead to calm, will it? A mind that is grasping in this moment, even if it seems, and if it's excused away as ide- ideologically purposeful, that mind is distracted and, will, and is prone to suffering. There's no acquisition in the Dhamma save for understanding what it means to be a human being. And you cannot acquire yourself. You can only, you can only become yourself. That's a, note, that's a meaning behind becoming. We talked about that two classes, three classes ago, the meaning of becoming. I can't remember. Uh, so what are we going to become this moment? Are we go, going to become a further fabricated speculative self or am I, go, am I going to become real, become a human being? Devoted to understanding and train their minds only for calm. This is my summary and analysis of the six properties. The six properties that constitute every human being. And look at these, and as I'm reading them, you can ask yourself, excuse me. You can ask yourself, and it's a good question to ask on a daily basis, because it keeps us, uh, in, it keeps us united in our body and ceases us from grasping after something we simply cannot be. So this is my analysis, my summary and analysis of the six human properties. The earth property, and notice he's, he's talking about the four elements first, the liquid property, the fire property, and the wind property. So each of those four elements are necessary to constitute a physical human being. And, that, and all of that is part of the natural environment. These four elements constitute every element in the physical world, don't they? Why is the Buddha pointing that out first? Because we are, as human beings and everything else, Ordinary and common. There's nothing that to distinguish us in that way from a tree. But we're not one with the tree. Every human being and every aspect of the phenomenal world is discrete. Where the only uniting aspect is the is the physical formation of ourselves. But that doesn't that doesn't um, in, infer or inform some kind of cosmic mind just because we we share the same physical quality. Each and every human mind is unique to itself. And each and every human mind decides for itself what it will become. I chose to become awakened once I came across the Buddhist Dhamma. I made that as a priority in my life. Excuse me. At a certain point in my Dhamma practice, it certainly wasn't the first word I read of the Buddhas, but making it a priority in my life, notice the word priority, I still did other things, right? Like other human beings. But by making it the priority in my life, my life's practice, it changed everything. That's how the Dhamma is to be practiced. The last two properties are the space property. Why is it Buddha, 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 the Buddha pointing out space when there doesn't seem to be anything there? That's not what he's pointing out. In order for a human being to activate itself, it has to have certain space properties. The mouth is a space property. The space going down into the esophagus is a space property. The, the nasal passages, the ears... The eyes, these are all space properties. 
It's not, the reason why I'm saying this is to not take our mind from looking out into space, but to look within. This is how a human being experiences life, through this space problem. And it also includes the space that encompasses my form. And the last property that makes up a human being is the consciousness property. And again, the Buddha doesn't place any specialness to consciousness. Excuse me. It's modern evolution and a misunderstanding that takes the word consciousness and makes it mystical and magical and somehow um, unifying that we all are of one mind, we're all of one consciousness, and all minds ultimately resolve in the one grand cosmic mind. Well, that might be true, but that's also annihilation and it doesn't help a human being live this life. The Buddha taught that each and every human being is a discrete human being, not connected to other people. And it is that connection or the, the compulsive need to connect everybody into one huge organism that is an aspect of craving for and clinging to ignorance, isn't it? And it's a direct aspect of clinging, clinging and maintaining. That's how we... Um, it's that fabrication, that one mind fabrication that allows us to maintain the overarching fabrication because it's, it, it directs our mind away from what the, what the problem is. It's, it's, it's just another huge distraction. The Buddha continues. Why am I reading like that? A person has these six properties. Furthermore, a person has six media of sensory conduct. You've heard me talk about the sixth sense base. The eye... The ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the intellect. A person has these six media of sensory contact. Furthermore, a person has 18 considerations. These are the things we should be considering as Dhamma practitioners. On seeing form with the eye, one considers form as a basis for pleasure, or form as a basis for disappointment, or form as a basis for equanimity. That also points to how the Dhamma practice, how Dhamma practice is to be practiced in this moment, right here and right now. That's the only, in this present moment is the only time that we can practice the Dhamma. If we see the form as a basis for pleasure, we're going to be seeking pleasure with this form. If we see it, the form or our life as a basis for disappointment, we're going to be doing everything we can to avoid disappointment, greed, aversion, and Ongoing deluded thinking that does not result in a mind rooted in equanimity. Or we can be Dhamma practitioners and see the form as the foundation for a mind rooted in equanimity, meaning a mind united in its body. The next uh, determination is on hearing sound with the ear. One considers sound as a basis for pleasure or sound as a basis for disappointment or sound as a basis for equanimity. So every time that I encounter the world, I have an opportunity to practice the Dhamma. And I think some of you are seeing this even more clearly, this idea of wise restraint in this present moment, now that you're hearing this again. It is in this present moment, coming into contact with the world, that I practice the Dhamma. And I can either use this, what's occurring, for pleasure, to continue chasing pleasure, to continue avoiding pain, or to rest in equanimity. That's my choice in this moment, in each and every moment of my human life, from the moment I was born to the moment I die. Being ignorant of this choice doesn't obviate the choice. The choice is always there. The Buddha discovered that human beings are ignorant of the choice. Am I going to avail myself of the choice? Yes. How do I do it? It's rooted in jhana meditation. I have to have a well-concentrated mind in order to make this choice in this moment. And I have to, I have to develop, use, use jhana meditation, a well-concentrated mind, 
to develop refined mindfulness that can hold in mind the Eightfold Path so in this moment I can practice wise restraint. I can practice the Dhamma. Does everybody get that or does anybody have any questions about that? Online? That's the immediacy of the Dhamma. It's right here and right now. That's, and again, you could say that every teaching points to that because it does, but this specifically does, doesn't it? It's getting right to that. Either, either greed, aversion, or equanimity. Either pleasure, disappointment, or equanimity. That's my choice. Notice that the choice, it's my choice that leads to pleasure, pain, disappointment, or equanimity, isn't it? It has nothing to do with, the Buddha's not saying, if you get everything you want, then you can practice the Dhamma. If you avoid everything you don't want, then you can practice the Dhamma. As a normal consequence of having a human life, there's going to be great pleasure, and there's going to be great disappointment, and there's the opportunity to practice equanimity throughout all of it. Unstilling, unsmelling an aroma with a nose, one considers aroma as a basis for pleasure or aroma as a basis for disappointment or, or aroma as a basis for equanimity. I'm going I'm to skip over the, the other two um, aspects of that and just get to the last one because they're, they're all the same. On cognizing an idea with the intellect, one considers the idea as a basis for pleasure or the idea as a basis for disappointment or the idea as a basis of equanimity. Here the Buddha is teaching us the importance to be mindful of each and every thought because each and every thought that we have, depending on how the context that we're applying that thought, is a thought that will lead to either pleasure, pain, or equanimity. Each and every thought. Here the Buddha is drilling down to the essence of the Dhamma and it's the essence of awakening. Gaining control of my thinking through jhana meditation and refined mindfulness and then thinking only what's appropriate in this moment, meaning thinking that is well-framed by the Eightfold Path, moment by moment. How does that also point to uh, the teaching of karma? Yes, thank you. Yes, you remember going back in our class, that might have been the Thursday class, recently we went through karma and rebirth. Karma is the present moment unfolding of past intentional actions, moderated or modified by what I'm holding in mind. So what David is pointing out is my karma is unfolding each and every moment. The only way to, to address karma unfolding is also in this present moment. The only way I can interrupt my own conditioned thinking that would further karma is to interrupt it right here and right now. You cannot interrupt anything that's already occurred, can you? My thinking passes past from the, from the past up until this last moment. And I certainly can't interrupt my thinking tomorrow or even in the next moment, can I? And so if the whole purpose of the Buddhist Dhamma is to interrupt conditioned thinking, I have to do it right here and right now. I have to have a vehicle that can deliver me from being stuck in the past or thrown into the future that can deliver me right here in this present moment. That's jhana meditation and refined mindfulness. Because in this moment, I need both concentration and a developing right view. That's the Eightfold Path. In order to see these things that the Buddha is teaching us to consider. These are the six considerations that are conducive to pleasure, the six considerations that are conducive to disappointment, and the six considerations that are conducive to equanimity. Each and every moment, it's my choice. A person has these 18 considerations. Furthermore, a wise Dharma practitioner... Does everybody get the 18? There's three aspects to each of the six senses? Okay. Because I had somebody question me that. Six times three is 18, right? Yes. Yeah. The, three, the three access of the six, sense, the six senses equals 18 considerations. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jim. 
This is why we have a room full of teachers and no students, because you've got to keep, keep, the, keep the main teacher going. Furthermore, a wise Dhamma practitioner has four determinations. We have the determination for discernment or wisdom. In this moment, as a Dhamma practitioner, it is my determination to develop wise discernment, meaning the ability to see reality within the fabrication of my own mind. The determination for the truth. In this moment, I want to experience noble truths. Not a fabricated truth or an idea of acquisition that I might have developed in my mind as a truth, such as a blue sky is a truth, isn't it? It's a part of the truth of human existence. But to constantly insist that every day has to be a blue sky or I'm going to be disappointed is a fabrication. It's not possible. It's only going to cause disappointment for me. A determination for the truth. Some days there's blue skies, some days, some days it rains. Some days you eat the, beer, some, the bear, some days the bear eats you. It's just a part of having a human life. Whether the bear gets me or I get a nice bear dinner, it, there's nothing personal about that. It's just another aspect of a, a day in my life. The next determination, the third determination, is the ter- determination for relinquishment. Relinquishment of, my, of what? Relinquishment of ignorance. Why does it take a determination to relinquish ignorance? I'm going to look. Somebody want to answer that? Ignorance tends to want to keep going. Yep. Keep, keep supporting itself. Yep. It's a circular thing. Yep. It's in. It's it's part of the root of the word ignorance to ignore ignorance. You know, it it really is the perfect word for how most human beings live our life because that one word ignorance describes what we do. We ignore our own humanity throughout life, most human beings. We're fortunate because we found something that can lead us towards what it really means to be a human being. You know, and I should point out, that's all that the Dhamma is. And when you realize that, when you think about that, and, and because of the way we structure our classes, this doesn't occur. There, there, there could be no ego participation in that kind of practice. Could there be? The practice itself could not become another distraction because of... of Skillful practice prevents furthering the practice itself from feeding our ego. We, ha- we can't practice with an ego. At some point, we have to abandon those fabricated ideas. And finally, the determination for calm. That final determination keeps us focused. As we, this is why I'm doing this, to develop a calm and peaceful mind. Is grasping after that fabricated notion of a future life or whatever it might be going to develop calm? Is chanting endlessly going to de- likely to develop calm, a, a lasting calm? Or all the other fabrications that I might have tried to develop going to lead to calm? Or is a practice that is, de- that is determined by calm to be the focus going to lead to calm? The Buddha continues, a wise Dhamma practitioner has these four determinations. Um, as I thought, I'm going to stop there and we'll continue uh, with this. <clears throat> Let me just wait a minute. I might stop at this next one. Let me just go a little further in that because this will synopsize that. A Dhamma practitioner should not neglect discernment, should guard the truth, be devoted to relinquishment, and train only for calm. That's a good place to, spot, to stop because uh, Tuesday I'll tell you how to do it. <laughs> Uh, thank you for listening to the first half of that. Uh, let's go uh, online first and invite those folks to join our sangha here. Uh, I know Mary's there. Mary, how are you today? 
Hi, Mary. Maybe Mary is uh, No, Mary's left, it looks like. Tom, how are you? Yeah, Mary's there. Mary? Yeah, we'll come back to her. Tom, good morning. How are you doing today? Hi, John. Just wait a sec. Um, all right. Um, yeah, I, uh, thanks for the teaching. I, I really found it, actually. I, I must confess, um, I don't always read the text ahead of joining these these sessions. Oh. That's not... That's naughty. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, Tom, I think you're the only one. So, you know. You gotta, you gotta... <laughs> um, I don't even read them before. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I've actually got in the habit the last week of um, beginning each day with, with some Dharma study. Great. Um, mostly from your book, Becoming Buddha, but, but also, um, so this morning I read the text, I read this sutta, it was a really long one, yeah. um, and, and, um, and then it really helped actually, it, it, it just helps to sort of solidify things or clarify things when I've, when I've read it in advance. So for all those people out there that are not doing their homework, um, I recommend you do, because I, I see the benefits. <laughs> um, and um, just just one thing I wanted to just check out, understood, because the whole sort of, you know, the wind, space, um, fire kind of elements, I guess I was, I was trying to sort of, um, at first when I read it, I was trying to sort of think if I'm, if I'm supposed to sort of really reflect on that, like wind on my body or fire in my stomach, maybe if I've eaten something hot or or I'm feeling anxious or whatever. I mean, am I supposed to reflect on it on that level? Or is it more just more a point of just saying, it's more just saying that you, like you were saying, that we're not, we don't have physical properties all that different to a tree. So it's like, we feel the wind just like the tree feels a wind. And it's the whole point of that is to say that we're similar in all space. We don't have to reflect on space so much just to think that we are similar to um, an oak, you know, a tree that has that's hollow in the middle or whatever, that also has space. Is that is that what we're getting at? Um, in a very general way, it is just that that we all experience life through these elements, and and a tree experiences the wind. But really, what the Buddha is referring to are the elements that actually make up the physical property. So the earth property, if you look at the earth, the earth is it represents physical form, all physical form. Right. The wind property actually is a reference to to respiration, to the breath in that case. Ah, respiration, okay. Uh, the fire would be the, the digestive process, fire in the uh. belly. And so the Buddha is simply describing, and he's describing it in this way, the impersonal elements that make up every human being. So when you understand form, I mean, if you understand the four elements, why would you take any of that personal? You have the same four elements I do. So does everybody else. You know, so does the the greatest baseball player in the world. Mickey Mantle had the same four elements that I did. I do. I I could never be Mickey Mantle, even though I tried. <laughs> There's no difference in that way, but it doesn't imply a connection. It simply means we're we're all we're all common. We're all made up of these common elements. So yeah, yeah. Okay, that helps. Yeah, thanks, John. Yeah, thank you, Mary. Are you there? Yeah, 
I am here. Oh, good. Good morning. I think I need a new phone, and I know David's rolling his eyeballs right now. Saying <laughs> yes, well, um, I think so you need a new phone, too. <laughs> um, so I, I understand it to be um, the very ordin- ordinariness of um, ourselves, and uh, each moment it's this specialness that we want to bring to ourselves um, and to this moment and this uh, wind blowing and how we feel about the wind blowing and it's all these um, feelings that we bring to um, ourselves and our day-to-day experiences that we want to make special which distract us from you know living our ordinary life and it's hard to accept that we're supposed to just have an ordinary life, that that's the goal, because <laughs> we're trying so hard, um, or we're grasping or clinging to things that try to frame us in an extraordinary way. Yep. So that that's how I took it, and it's a reminder um, to, um, you know, it, it, it keeps the clinging and craving in check to to think about these things, to say, this is just, you know, this is ordinary, I'm ordinary, um, stop assigning so much specialness to everything, it's a distraction away from what is, um, what is just ordinary, what is just, like, the beauty of that, I guess, what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And... Mary, again, you're getting, you're, you're taking this just as it should be taken. It's just that. There's, we're, we're just ordinary people. And, you know, don't we get into trouble when we try to be something that we're not? And it doesn't mean that we're not uh, even successful in the world in a, in a worldly sense. We just don't get caught up in it. It's just what it is. You know? And life becomes, it be, then life becomes a moment-by-moment expression of calm and equanimity, no matter what we're doing and, and what we're involved in. Thank you, Mary. Brian, good to see you this morning. Good to see you. Thank you for this. My um, pleasure. This one's really, for me, clear that you know, we, we live these binary existence where we're just oscillating between between two poles. Yeah. And, and Buddha points out that there's there's this third option in everything and, and shifts that mindset. And once you see that there's you know that the middle path, right? There's something in the middle between hot and cold and good and bad and, and all that. And this, this pseudo, I think, just really clearly demonstrates that, at least for me, which yeah. is pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It, thank you, Brian. And, uh, and it only gets better. I mean, like I said, this is, um, this is one of my <laughs> many favorite suttas, but this, this in particular really drills down to the, to the heart of the issue, isn't it? So thank you, Brian. Steve, how are you this morning? Thank you, and thank you for teaching. Uh, yes, I have to be admit, it's very interesting sutra, and it's made me uh, <coughs> uh, interesting way. Uh, when we starting relied on uh, fabrication, I think uh, take uh, six human property, just create something who not we are. We create right away separation, kind of like you, me, I am better than you, I'm smarter than you, or quite opposite, yeah, I'm smarter than you, you're better than me, 
But we all humans with uh, six property, we all have some limits. Yeah. And when we relate on fabrication, it creates suffering because we like or dislike. But when we start fabricating, it's right away arising equanimity. Yeah. And equanimity, mm-hmm. we able to get peace. <clears throat> Well said, my friend. Well said. Thank you, Steve. Karen, good to see you this morning. Would you like to say hello? Yes, I would love to say hello, and I would love to thank you, as usual, for your teachings and everybody else for their feedback. Thank you, Karen. We're going to see you soon. Yes. (laughs) I'll get back to you, like I said, this weekend or Monday at the latest. Perfect, perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Hello, Ron. John, um, it's I like these suttas that where the Buddha teaches uh, somebody who's already uh, on the path, who's like fairly accomplished, and he just uh, you know in, in you know twenty minutes takes him through the whole dharma and just distills it to, to its essence mm-hmm. and basically tells him, like, it's real simple. You know, there's just this. Yeah. Don't get distracted by all of the speculative stuff that's out there. This is just it. Yeah. And Pukasati gets it with the usual results, of course. Yeah. Oh, there's a great ending to the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> Spoil the ending. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Yeah, good to see you this morning. Bye. Good to see you, John. Thank you for the teaching. My pleasure. Um, it's good to be here physically, and I think I'm. I think I'm good. I think I'm gonna let everybody else talk today. Right, thank you. Mm-hmm. Good morning, David. Good morning, John. I'm good. There you are. Glad you're here. Good morning, Adam. Okay, I'm Alex. Alex. I moved. What? <laughs> no, Alex. Alex. <laughs> good morning, Alex. <laughs> Uh, especially with the mask on. Yeah. Yeah. What, so what did you think of... The, and you don't have, if you don't want to say anything, just say you don't no, want to say anything. What do you think of this class? And, it's great. And uh, yeah, I think what, um, uh, what Mary said and Ram said it just kind of like clicked right into place. Like very simple and, um, you know, um, easy to grasp for me. Yeah. Well... You're a natural, so, you know. I'll see you Tuesday night. <laughs> Good to see you, Alex. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, John. Yeah, this um, sutta is just, you know, chock full of everything. It's, it's the whole thing. It refers to all the Buddhist teachings. And I just love it um, with these discernments. It culminates in this calm. And we can, <coughs> we can reach this calm in our jhana. Yeah. Uh, meditation and jhana. And uh, then hopefully we can carry forth into our lives on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for this. Thank you, Kevin. I'm glad you're here this morning. Alex? <laughs> Good morning, Alex. <laughs> uh, every, every now and then, one of these teachings is, uh, is a thunderclap moment for me. Yeah. This, this was one of them. Mm-hmm. But thank you so much. Yeah, it, thank you. Thank you just for, for being here. But that's how it was for me, too. I mean, this, this is one of those ones that really clarified things, you know. Thanks, Adam. Good morning, Becky. Good morning, John. Thank you for your teaching. Um, I enjoyed listening to what everyone else had to say, and the thing that Adam just said is true for me. 
especially the determin the four determinations are so um, just right there. This is yeah. this is what you have to keep in mind. And your explanation of moment to moment practicing of the Dhamma was especially meaningful to me today. So thank you and thank all of you. Thank you, Becky. Thanks for joining us. Tommy, good to see you. Good morning. And John, and thank you for your teachings. My pleasure. I think I have a pretty full understanding of everything when you start off with a, a drunk who has the DTs in hand. Got the Buddha in a shed. I, I think I've got a pretty good sense of the whole. And, uh, now this was actually very, very graspable and um, balancing in, in thought. And yeah. I appreciate it. So thank you so much. Yeah. I'm glad you joined us, Tommy. I'll, we'll be talking early in the week. I hope so. Yes. I hope so, too. Um, you can Alex. What? Oh, Alex, I'm my Alex. Oh, jeez. Alex! <laughs> How are you, Alex? Sorry. No worries. You like I said, this, this sangha I requires a lot of teachers. No worries. I was going to take a normal silence anyway, so um, I felt like it was telepathically communicated. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it was. <laughs> Big Good to see you, Alex. Enjoy your practice. I'll see you. I'll see you Thursday. I hope. Yeah. Alex and uh, and Tom are part of our Cross Pond Meditation Center that's based in Brighton in London. Um, all right, we'll finish with uh, with Meta as we always do, uh, and we'll we'll conclude this next week. It might be even be the three class sutta. Uh, so find your relaxed meditation posture. Become mindful of your in breath and your out breath. And let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta as translated by the Amaravati uh, Sangha in London. The Buddha's words. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties, and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Peace. Thank you, John. Thank you all online.
Thanks, Sean. Thank you, John. See Thanks, you all soon. Yeah. Thank you, John. Thank you. See you, Steve. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.